Meet Your Maker makes professional-grade grinders, vacuum sealers, sausage stuffers, dehydrators, and just about everything else to turn your garage, deer camp, or kitchen into a meat processing haven. Meat only sells their processing tools direct to consumer, cutting out the retailer markup guaranteeing you the best price. Meat also has the only lifetime warranty in the industry, and Meat ships your tools direct to you for free. Visit MeetYourMaker.com and use code WAYPOINT for an exclusive discount. And get ready to deer IY this fall. This episode brought to you by Gundog Outdoors. They are focused on the safety and comfort of our hunting dogs. We personally carry the Gundog Outdoors first aid kit as it has all of the items that we need to keep our dogs safe in the event of an injury in the field. We also carry their water bottle to keep our dogs hydrated while during those hot months at the beginning of the year. Be sure to go check out gundogoutdoors.com and use code ringnecks to save you some cash. Hunters, welcome back to another Flushing and Dustin podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Hunt Ready. Uh, it's always good to have a good vest on in the field, especially when you're walking those long miles. So go check out Hunt Ready American Made Vest. Uh, tonight we have on a guest. His name is Brad Trumbo. Did I say the last name right? Awesome. He uh, he's an upland hunter. He's an author, biologist. Uh, so he runs Llewellyn Setters. Uh, before we got to talking, he said he's got four of them. So he's definitely enjoys those dogs. Um, so we're excited to bring him on, learn more about him, learn more about the setters and uh, learn more about some of his work. So Brad, if you'd like to introduce yourself, that'd be great. Yeah, howdy, Tyler. Thanks for having me on tonight. Uh, Brad Trumbo, I'm down on the southeast corner of Washington State. And uh, as Tyler mentioned, I'm an upland bird hunter and a biologist and an author and and uh, it's because I'm a simple kind of guy, you know, my mind just is stuck in the outdoors and bird hunting and fly fishing in particular, and try to make a, try to make a living out of that. Yeah. Can't beat that. What, uh, has tr- fly fishing been going good recently with spring and summer coming? Yeah. I, I don't get out as much as I would like to in the spring uh, for a couple of reasons, partially because I've got a homestead and, and I'm working on, you know, habitat projects. And of course, everything else that pops up when it's like, oh, I need to use my tractor. Well, the battery's dead. So then you get, you know, just all the general stuff. Um, and uh, they're, they're, I, I like stream fishing and there really isn't much opportunity here where I'm at in, in Washington. But if I go up central Washington, there's a ton of good lake fishing. And uh, so I went up in March and met a buddy up there and it was phenomenal. And so, yeah, it's been good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you do what type? Uh, are they just rainbow trout up there or brown trout? Yeah, those are desert rainbows mostly that I fish for in the spring. Nice. That'd be fun. There's some in Iowa here, there's a northeast corner. There's some uh, good springs that are they have some decent trout fishing. I've never really fished myself, just some buddies that I know that have had some success up there. And um, a guy that I, in my hometown, he actually has a spring fed pond. Nice. And he uh, he raises trout in it. Uh, so he has some nice big ones and every so often and he'll let us go pull a couple of them out of there and put them on the smoker and oh man, they're super good. Yeah, tough to beat. Yeah. So well, what got you into uh, upland hunting? You know, so where I'm I'm from Appalachia 
and uh, where I grew up, there's not a whole lot for upland bird hunting. Um, I, I've seen so few rough grouse in my youth. I, you know, I probably could have counted them all on a couple of hands. Uh, I only remember ever seeing a single woodcock, um, a single pheasant that escaped a farm somewhere. So I moved out to Washington. What was I? I was about 30 when I came out here to, to take a job and uh, accidentally ended up getting my first rooster pheasant that fall and uh, kind of the rest is history you know when I when I realized I was living in in an area that actually had a variety of upland bird species um, my my wife she, back then she was you know just um, fiance and she was like I, I think you need a bird dog and I'm like who what who's no who's, you know I can't afford a dog what are you talking about yeah well so she did a deep dive into into critters and and just came up with uh, personality and temperament traits from the well and setter and plus you know setters are really pretty with the long hair and the, yeah. and the ticking and whatnot and so she just like we're getting to the well and setter and I'm like well who might argue you know so yeah we ended up with a little orange belt and pup who was absolutely horrible for a while uh, as just crazy personality but that dog really got the wheels turning for me you know when we had our first real wild bird hunt and, and you shot a rooster and I just haven't looked back and we've ended up just adding dogs and adding more days of field and the rest is history. Yeah. That's awesome. What, uh, how old is your oldest Llewellyn setter then? So the oldest one I have is a rescue and she's 11. And then the next, the next oldest is 10 and then seven and four. Yeah. So what was it like? Did you, your first ones, have you trained all the dogs yourself or did you? take them somewhere loosely i would say i trained those dogs yeah <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm not i'm not a great dog trainer and you know when we got the first dog i didn't know the first thing about it uh so basic obedience get the dog out and just run them and that's that's largely how i've done it with all of them um, i've now have homing pigeons that i plan to start doing nice. things a little more appropriately um but yeah they you know letting the dogs learn on their own as, as well as me work learn with them has been kind of our mode of action. Yeah, for sure. Do you mainly hunt out in Washington state then? I do. It's, you know, it's just by default, it's easier to hunt where you're located and yeah. how many species I can hunt a couple different species of grouse, pheasant, chucker, partridge, um, you know, Hungarian partridge, valley quail, um, all that pretty local here. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So we can be on uh, four or five species a day if we really wanted to. So it's, it's, it's tough to beat, um, yeah. but you know, we, we do like to branch out and get into some other stuff, see some new country and try new birds. And here in Iowa, we got pheasant and for lucky we have quail, you know, for upland birds. Is, uh, is there a lot of public ground out in Washington state? It depends on where you're at. There, we've got a lot more BLM up in the, the kind of the central and northern areas. And then, of course, the western side of the state where the Cascade Range has uh, more national forest. And uh, where I am at down in the south, southeast corner, like the very bottom end below the Snake River, there's a lot of private land. Uh, there, there, there are a few pat tracks of legitimate public. Uh, most of what I hunt is public access. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, that is that the BLM stuff? Is that what considered public access out there? Or? Uh, it's um, called the Feel Free to Hunt program or um, hunt by written permission or hunt by reservation. So it's private ground. 
uh, the, of obviously some of it's in CRP, some of it's not. So you've, you've got access to a lot of ground that doesn't necessarily hold birds. You know, it's, it's in wheat farm or, or whatever. Um, the, the fallow ground that's planted for the conservation reserve program is pretty good in a lot of places. Um, we're, we are definitely limited to how many areas we can go and how and area sizes. And so it, the competition can be a little tough once in a while. Yeah, for sure. When you're uh, out on these, are these decent sized tracts of land or, or are they, you know, like in Iowa, we kind of have, you know, they're not huge by any means. So, you know, super large running dogs you know, probably aren't the greatest in Iowa conditions most of the time, but um, what's it kind of like out there? I would say the average parcel that I run dogs on down here is somewhere around two, 250 acres. Okay. You no, know, there there are uh, tracks that are far bigger, but when it comes down to actually having habitat on it, the, you know, if you got a couple hundred acres of habitat, that's a pretty good spot. Yeah, nice. Do you run uh, all your dogs at the same time, or you kind of have them split up one and one? Or you know, I can't imagine running them all together. <laughs> I, I think I might have to try it one day. Yeah, <laughs> but I um. You know, I, I guess over the years when you work dogs, when any, anybody that has dogs ends up with kind of a, a lineup on how they want to hunt them. And uh, for the longest time I ran, well, so when it started out, I had, when I had the first pair, I would hunt those two together all the time. Mm-hmm. And then when I got the third dog, the puppy, I ran her with my oldest dog to kind of as a, you know, train it up. And then I ran the middle dog just by herself. And I haven't hunted anybody with the rescue, the old dog. So she's she's just, she's got a little bit of a wild card about her. I really want to hunt her with the middle dog because that's a mother-daughter. So oh, we, nice. we got this rescue because we got her, you know, her daughter back years ago. And when the dog came up for adoption, we grabbed her. Um, <laughs> she's just, that's she's, crazy. I don't know if it was her upbringing or just the, the dog's genetics. She's not as sharp on... <laughs> processing things you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. so she's got a really really short flight or um fight or flight fuse and she she flees really quickly like in any kind of confusion uh, she'll take off so I, I don't hunt her with other dogs just because i like to keep to keep an eye on her even with a gps collar i just like to know that i've got full focus on that dog and yeah um, but you know if i if i had to choose what i like to do the most my my first and second dogs together are still just an unbeatable pair. And they just work well together? Or? They do. And I, I think it's because when the older dog was three and the younger dog was one or, or you know, puppy, and they hunted together as they were really coming into their, their prime. Uh, the, when my first dog turned three is when she really started to learn to hunt birds. And the day that like the, the first hunt of that season, we got into roosters like crazy. And that specific day, you could just see the lights come on for that dog. And uh, having the, the younger dog with her, you know, when we're, we're down in the limit of roosters, then that, that young dog is watching this older dog, backing the dog, you know, going in to get the bird. And she became a phenomenal pheasant dog right there. So that's awesome. Yeah. It's all about getting them out and getting that exposure. You know, definitely is some have that natural ability to just put the pieces together when they see it or you expose them to it and it doesn't take much to train them which is no nope. awesome 
and those two probably because they they hunted together a lot when they were younger they've they just you put them on the ground together and they're not in each other's way but they complement each other so well in the field and they do end up paying attention to one another just enough that they you know they kind of cross each other's paths and yeah and uh, when they're working in the field and and there's almost guaranteed when one goes on point the other's going to spot it and come in and back it That's so awesome. yeah it's really cool that is really cool so you're uh you're a biologist as well, is that correct? Yep. So I didn't realize that I was ever going to be into any kind of wildlife or habitat, uh, especially not terrestrial. You know, growing up, I was big into fishing and decided that, you know, fish, wildlife, forestry, something like that was going to be the career path. And I ended up in fisheries. So I worked and, and went to college, you know, got degrees and had experience most all in fisheries. Um, when I moved out here, though, and, and it really the upland bird thing turned me on to habitat, which hooked me into pheasants forever. And then suddenly I just found my niche in, uh, I work for the Corps of Engineers and we've got like 50,000 acres of public land here on the lower snake. And so I worked my way into that realm and uh, started into the actual on the ground management business. And so, yeah, now, you know, now I claim to be fish and wildlife biologist because I've been doing habitat for years and, um, and with pheasants forever, so. Oh, sorry, I was on There you mute. go. I was say, I think yeah. I lost your audio. <laughs> uh, no, what, what I was saying while I was on mute was, um, is there a large difference between what pheasants forever is doing for land management purposes compared to what the army corps of engineers doing i would say no it, because we're you know if you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it it's all native grassland uh, like shrub step habitat that both organizations are working to enhance out here the the biggest difference is the constraints of the federal entity, you know, trying to do their job versus a nonprofit that's got the money to just go do whatever they want. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. We got a bunch of uh, army course of engineers land right South of where I live. And it's kind of nice because the local community college has partnered up with them. And so for their, um, I guess it would be, probably their biology program or land management type program uh, that they have. They've partnered with them to where the community college actually um, for their classes and for projects and whatnot, they use this land uh, to enhance it. They've, um, you know, they put in CRP areas. Uh, they've done uh, um, not like full dig outs of ponds, but kind of a, a worked on drainage areas and put in, you know, uh, duck nests, like wood duck yeah. nests and whatnot. Um, and they've done, uh, last year they started just doing, so a lot of it is old uh, farmland that was, and I don't know if, I don't know when the transition occurred from, you know, the farmer planting to, they kind of just let it overgrow a little bit, you know, and now this year they started burning it off. Uh, and so hopefully good grasses will come back through, but the last year, uh, Kirkwood would, um, they would planted clover 
around like where the edge of the fields were up against the timber lines. Um, so they've been doing a lot with it lately, which is, which is pretty cool to see, you know, that it's definitely been enhancing. And um, so it's, it's kind of nice to get that partnership that they're working together, you know, mm-hmm. to, it's not relying on just one entity. You got two of them and you got basically free labor, you know, from college kids are bringing out the Kirkwood equipment to do all this. And um, so that's pretty cool to see. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I actually just accepted another job with the Corps. And so I'm, right now I work in the Endangered Species Act realm, um, kind of primarily. And so the habitat functions, I almost serve like a contractor for our natural resources team. Um, you know, if, if they have the funds to get me on board to help them do stuff, then I do. Um, I just accepted a position kind of at the program lead level for natural resources management. So I'll be picking that one up in a couple of weeks. And I'm hoping that, you know, that job has the opportunity to leverage partnerships and whatnot. And I'm hoping to, to be able to open some of those doors uh, for the same purposes on our, our lands out here. Yeah, because like you said, you worked. How long did you work for with Pheasants Forever? Oh, I, I'm I've just volunteered. Volunteered. Yeah. Well, at least got you got it. connections, though. Yeah. You know that could really help out. Yeah, and this chapter is, is pretty active and pretty well funded, and they um the chapter has a, a memorandum of understanding with one of the core properties out here, and you know for things like habitat work and education, and uh, we've got a pollinator plot going on there, and so. Uh, there's yeah there's definitely a lot of opportunity and in, in, uh, cooperating with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife so yep so what does what do you kind of do now currently with the endangered species what's your day job so th- <laughs> what that looks like is uh, a federal regulation you know a federal agency that takes a, a quote-unquote action has got to comply with the, the uh, National Environmental Policy Act and so under that act is things like the Endangered Species Act and Fish and Wildlife Coordination Act, uh, Bold and Golden Eagle Protection Act, et cetera. And so my job is, is right now is a team leader for the biologists who help the Corps of Engineers comply with those fish and wildlife laws. Okay. So a lot of what I do is um, consult with uh, Fish and Wildlife Service and National Marine Fishery Service on threatened and endangered species. Is so? You, are you talking like when the eagles were on the endangered species, and you work on with those with that, or is it different? Yeah. So now that eagles are a little bit different, so let's talk about fish because we got you know all the salmon and steelhead out here have some yeah. type of endangered species act listing. So if um, if the Corps of Engineers needs to go out and do some maintenance at a dam or something, then whatever that looks like, you know, I've got to consult on the action with those other agencies to make sure that, you know, we've done our diligence and have um, minimized any potential impact. That's, okay. that's really the purpose of, of ESA consultation. Nice. So you, do you kind of got to go know the ins and outs of those acts then to make sure that you're complying with them and yep we know we know the laws and we know how to how to coordinate with the other agencies on them you know what the processes are what the timelines and other requirements are and so yeah you got to know them and that's you know one of the things like i've found was started that job we didn't learn anything about 
someone in college that talked about all these different environmental laws, but including some bigger stuff like RCRA and CERCLA and um, the you know pollution type things, didn't have a clue that Endangered Species Act was this big of a deal, and you know, and some of these other like Fish and Wildlife Coordination Act, and then come to work for a federal agency and and realize what this actually means and and how it affects how work actually gets done on the ground. It's 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 interesting. Yeah, that is crazy. That would be that would be a pretty interesting job, I would say. It's always you. it's always interesting. It's never boring, and it's also yeah. frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it's probably hard working with you know multiple entities under to get one thing kind of accomplished. You know, that's yep, never easy. Is. So, no, that's awesome. And not only are you a biologist, but you're also also a published author. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, that is correct. <laughs> so, uh, you wrote. What's the name of the book that you wrote? So, I wrote a, a book recently. It just published uh, end of January this year. It's called Wing Shooting the Palouse, and it was obviously inspired by bird hunting here in Washington, and it, it spans further than that. So, it, you know, I hunt. I've hunted all the way out to North Dakota and back, and um, so I, I include some stories like that, but really it's just an essay, a book of essays on the various types of bird hunting, you know, species that I've pursued and um, just working with the dogs and being on the landscape and really the, it, a, a bigger picture of a of kind of an emotional connectedness to all of it, you know, ecosystem and and just the beauty of it all. And, and so it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a how-to it's, and it's not all about killing limits of birds. It's really just about what are the unique experiences and and how do they strike you when you're out there? And because there's, it's you know it's it's hard to it's it's hard to find an experience in my from my perspective that's that's more like heartfelt and and hits you in the soul than when you're running the dog that's you know your best furry friend and you're just out having a ball and got the wind in the hair you know and then. The dogs either, sometimes the dog's not finding birds, but when the dog's finding birds, you know, and you get this beautiful, like, sunrise or sunset scene, and you put up these gorgeous freaking birds, you know, there's just beautiful up in birds, and, and just when everything works textbook, it's like, wow, I can't believe this is actually something I get to do. Yeah. <laughs> so there's just a lot to that, that, that inspired, you know, the writing, and, and I got, I published professionally my first piece in 2017 and it was a story about my middle dog who's got uh, she was born with really severe hip dysplasia and we okay. knew it at seven months and um, got her an x-ray and on, I mean on the x-ray you could see the dog's pelvis really did not form a hip socket oh wow so my wife and I decided that we would we would hunt the dog and just pay attention to her you know when she got to the point where she needed the surgery we would do it and so at three years old, she had three or four, she had the first, first one done. And so it was the femoral head ostectomy where they, if the, um, the ball of the femur that fits into the socket in the pelvis, they, they went in and cut the ball off because they get really gnarly they, and, and bone spurs and, you know, and it's really, okay. really just rub on the pelvis. And yep. so did the first one. Um, I think two years later, we had to do the second one. So the dog doesn't have any hips. <laughs> oh wow she actually does really well apparently you know smaller dogs do well she's only about 30 35 pounds have you ever wanted to process your own wild game from start to finish 
Meet Your Maker has you covered. Mead makes professional-grade grinders, vacuum sealers, sausage stuffers, dehydrators, and just about everything else to turn your garage, deer camp, or kitchen into a meat processing haven. Mead only sells their processing tools direct to consumer, cutting out the retailer markup, guaranteeing you the best price. Mead also has the only lifetime warranty in the industry. And Meat ships your tools direct to you for free. Visit MeetYourMaker.com and use code WAYPOINT for an exclusive discount. And get ready to Dear IY this fall. So anyway, the the situation with that dog, you know, knowing how much pain she was in, even, you know, not even a year old. And then we had some real issues with the breeder uh, regarding what their guarantee was on genetic issues and, you know, that was a pretty rough thing that we went through. And then the fact that, you know, I've never seen the tenacity in a dog like this one has. Yeah. And so I, I, I wrote a story about her first pheasant. Let's hear it. So this is the, the, the bird that was her first actual bird. She'd been probably her, her one year season. So her second season. And it was late, late season. And uh, we had, just we were coming home from a site that I usually run the dogs on I call it the training grounds because it's a it's a close and it's a beautiful piece and it's full of birds and uh, it was it was late enough in the year and snowing and really nasty and so that we weren't finding birds and I figured it's because folks had, had over time had pushed them off so we're driving home and I just look out across this little hummock in the wheat field and there's a, a really nasty brushy ditch that's, uh, you know, reed canary grass and, and uh, woods rose. And I see like 25 pheasant feeding along the edge of that wheat field. And I was like, holy smokes. I literally whipped the truck off the side of the road and skidded it up to a halt. And I pulled out a map because I was there out here. There are a bunch of wind turbine areas and all of it's kind of combined into areas that have public access. And so I was like, is this one of the spots, you know? So I pulled out my wind farm map and I'm looking through there and I was like, yeah, I think this is right. And I don't know if it was actually right or not. I'm yeah. pretty sure it was. <laughs> so For this case, it was, yeah. <laughs> it was, man. So I rolled out and I, I chucked that dog out the door and, she, you know, the pheasant were on to us already because they had heard the truck and stuff. Yeah. And they were, so they were moving around this hummock and went into this thick stuff and were working their way up the ditch, just kind of running away from us. And it looked like a super highway in the snow and the dog got on that stuff. <laughs> she just, she just started trailing those birds and I could see a bunch of them about a hundred yards starting to get up and fly onto the property. I knew didn't have access. And I was yeah. like, well, whatever. Well, it's, and at some point she kind of disappeared down into this bottom of the swale and I was expecting her to pop back up and she just never did. And uh, I had my other dog out too, my older dog, and she covered a great big swath up around this the swale, and came back down and kind of went on point. And she had never had an opportunity to back a dog before, right? Because yeah. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, something's going on in here. Because number one, the pup's not coming when I'm calling her; she's not showing up anywhere. Yeah. So I, you know, I walk over and I peek down into the swale, and that dog is locked up hard. And it's just like, holy crap! You know, it's one of those moments where you don't question it. It's like, all right, I'm yeah. going in. And so I went down in there and I kicked around and I kicked around. And finally, it was like this, this rooster was buried under the thick frozen hunk of reed canary grass and finally kicked that bird up and downed it. And that dog was just could not have been more proud. That's awesome. <laughs> she had such an awesome moment there. 
And uh, so I, I, I wrote that one up and weaved it into the issues that we had had with the breeder and, and hip dysplasia. And, yeah. uh, but I, it wasn't like a slanderous type thing. It was just basically weaving in that, yeah, and she was born with, you know, severely handicapped basically. And, and all I, all I really did was throw in the breeder's name because yeah. I wanted it, I wanted it to be clear that this dog came from this breeder and I didn't have to say anything else. Yep. For like sure. Pointing dog journal took it and published it right away. And so that was, that was really awesome. You know, kind of an eye opener for me. Uh, and I, I, I know dabbled in writing for a long time, just, just for giggles. Right. Yeah. Uh, but people actually found me on Facebook after reading that article and reached out to my wife and I, they would hit us up on Facebook. They, they wanted to call us. They wanted to talk to us about the dog and about the breeder. And, and so when I realized, you know, how much I actually enjoyed writing that, yeah. and that, that type of, you know, information put out there people actually get something out of it and want to know more and want to tell i want to ask questions about it and i was like there's actually some you know beneficial impact here that yeah. can be had on the hunting community so as i learned and started to write more then i started trying to you know getting into some magazines and i, st I still publish in magazines here and there just not as much since i've ended up with newspaper columns and um that's just kind of it's just all kind of snowballed. And, and now I'm to the point where it's like, I better not take on any more work because if I got a day job too, you know, yeah. I won't be able to get it all done. Not retired yet. Right. <laughs> right. That's and ultimately awesome. that was the plan. It's like, this is a lot of fun. And if I can, you know, if I look at the 20 year plan, I can yeah. build this up to have something where I don't need to, to cut into my retirement after I, I retire from the federal government. Yeah, for so, sure. And they already have good retirement, which is yeah. a positive thing, you know, exactly. Did you, uh, so how, uh, so the dog has no hips now. Mm -hmm. Um, how was the recovery for that? And she said she's, how old is she now? Four or she's, five? She's seven now. Seven now. Yeah. And so have, go ahead. Have you noticed since after that surgery, like the, how long it took to recover and then like what you do, is there certain things you do to try to help? with her longevity of being able to be a field? Yeah. So those are really good questions. And, you know, we weren't certain what was going to happen after with the first surgery, uh, because number one, this dog is a, she's a very, as, as much passion and drive as she shows in, in, in pain as she'll, as she'll just push through when she's hunting birds, she is a softy at home. And so it's like, Oh my gosh, we're never going to get this dog over the uh, the you know the recovery period because what the what the vet told us is okay when we do this you have to have that dog walking instantly there cannot be any you know she can't get soft she can't be delayed she's got to build a, basically a scar tissue false joint and you know where that femur was was cut yeah. and so he's like you don't, you know, if you can't get her on her feet, you've got to physically do the physical therapy for her. And that's, it's, you know, he showed us how to move the dog's legs and how to exercise her. And he's like, you got to do it at least four times a day. And it's, it was really hard with that pup, you know, knowing that she was in agony because I had to exercise her leg, but it was at the same time, it was like, I'm going to listen to what the doc says, because I want yeah. this dog to do what she loves to do. Yep. And so, it, I, I probably a week or two that I had to push her through that every day. But when I finally got her up and, and got her walking on it, it the, the healing went pretty quick. And it, 
made her a new pup for a couple of years until the other hip got so bad yeah. after the second surgery though i she knew what was going on and that dog walked out of the vet and really never missed a beat and she she was a little tender on that leg but she did not and she did not stop like she walked on it every single day i didn't have to do any physical therapy with her nice. she didn't make any she wasn't you know never cried about anything um yeah, so I, and the only thing I could really think is that hip hurt her so bad that having it, having the surgery was a relief. Yeah, 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 that'd be hard to, hard to see. Have you, now that she's seven years old, is she still moving pretty good? And yeah, she's doing well. It was the 20, let's see, last year was 2021, 2020 season. It was August when she, um, her hip had actually just popped out of joint. And okay. it was like, okay, we got to get this one done. And I hated to think that, you know, we're going to do it in August, but the good news is this, the pheasant season doesn't open in Washington until late October. Okay. So she missed all of the, the early grouse and, and early quail, but I had her out there on the pheasant opener and that dog took advantage of every second of it. Like nice. she was a whole new dog. And I actually, I wrote a, a piece for harvesting nature and a version of it in, in this book called a pointing dog reborn. And it was all about after that second surgery, she was just, I've never seen her that, yeah. that tenacious and that driven and just sticking points left and right, never missing a beat. I, I saw that dog do some stuff last uh, that that 2020 uh, season that it's just, I couldn't, I still can't believe how, how she hunted. Yeah. She just, so uh, she's got, she loves pheasant more than anything else, you know, and man, when she hits the ground, she will find them. That's awesome. <laughs> I think there's something special about being able to write about your experiences and whatnot. You know, I've, I've kicked around the idea of not just doing the podcast, but also, you know, maybe starting up a blog or, something like that about yeah. the hunts because i mean the the podcast we get to talk about them in brief and you know it's uh but when you're able to put words you know on a piece of paper and bring out the description and you know i i, th I think it's awesome when and you know maybe i won't have the skill but when you know the, a writer has that skill to be able to piece words together where you as a reader can just envision you know, what's going on or, you know, you can envision just what it looks like in the field. And, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's cool to, to be able to read. I think that's an art that's, you know, kind of disappearing, but maybe coming back a little bit uh, in the upland community, you know, there's some um, uh, younger writers uh, getting, or younger guys that are become starting to write that are, you know, um, getting some good, uh, articles out there and i think that's that's awesome you know and to be able to keep the magazines alive and yeah um, it, it's something that i think is is very cool and you know reading's always better than just looking at your computer screen all day yes anyways. it is so yeah and we're we're kind of in a, a time right now with all of the different media outlets that we're, we're you know i'm trying to think of how i want to put this basically <laughs> we're just we're just at a wealth of Oh, possibilities yeah. you know for people to get content out there and you know a, a lot of it's great some of it's not so great but a lot yep. of it really is and there's just a lot of opportunity yeah. and so I, one of the one of the things that i appreciate about 
being an author and reading other people's work is that everybody's got a little bit of a different perspective or different delivery yep. on everything. You know, you can take, if you had five guys that went through a pheasant hunt, every one of them would give you a different version of it. Right. Yeah. And so that's, that's just one of the things that I really appreciate about it. And what I try to do in my writing is engage the reader in the actual hunt itself because like you know like i mentioned earlier just all of the colors and the the scenery and how the dog works and the birds like the whole orchestration of the thing just really drives me and, and when you share the detail that really puts the picture into somebody else's mind instantly it makes it a much more interesting read for them yeah for sure you know and probably one of the tougher parts of being a writer i don't have any experience but what i would imagine is for you to be able to explain it in a way that not only you can envision because you were there but to put it into words that other people can now envision the same experience that you had and man, you get that on paper and shh, you're gonna have people locked in right away yeah and well so because my voice reads the same just about all the time. You know, I, I have kind of the same mental approach to everything. One of the things I need to be careful about is not, is not basically sounding the same thing with, you know, every single hunt, yeah. you know, um, but, you, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, where can you find your, um, the wing shoot you want at? So wing shooting the Palouse is available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble Oh, it's in paper copy. Yeah, yeah. it's it's um, nice. a, it's a print on demand thing, so you can you can find it at Barnes and Noble too, and um, Kiyoki Books. And so that's a group in Sandpoint, Idaho, that I worked with on publishing. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. What's uh, what's one of your favorite? You don't have to give the best story, but one of your favorite stories out of the book, if you don't mind sharing. And I don't know if I could actually pick a favorite or a best. <laughs> They're all you know, good. they're they're all good, and obviously some are going to be better than others. Yeah, um, I think that one of the stories that I like the best has to do with I think I call it the Fountain of Youth, and it is about me and my hipless dog in an afternoon where I was sitting here during COVID and telework, getting about tired of being a bureaucrat on on another. <laughs> you know webex meeting and uh, i'd started work early that morning and i'd never had the opportunity to hunt evenings during work because when i actually work in the office place my commute time keeps me from having any time to actually make it out to a hunt because the sun will set before then so it was like 2 30 in the afternoon on an incredible late october evening or early november evening and i was like you know what it's, it's time for me to quit. And I'm really not interested in this conference call. So I just did like, see ya, shut yeah. the laptop, grabbed the, grabbed the shotgun, threw the dog in the truck and went out to, to one of my favorite spots. And we had this just phenomenal evening. And, uh, you know, the sunset was perfect. Like the atmosphere was perfect. All of the colors were super brilliant. And, and in the, in the golden hour, um, the dog made a, just a hell of a find not long out of the truck um, and it was just the whole point of the thing is the two of us went out there and totally left reality behind. You know, we had a great hunt. We put up some birds. We got a great rooster in the bag and we enjoyed each other 
is, you know, just being together and, and you know, your dog enjoys hunting with you when they, when they check in, like they're supposed to, and they're yep. just, it's, it's a real team thing. You know, as the sun's going down, you, you kind of have a sit down with the dog and you check out the bird you got. And it's just, it's, you totally forget of, of all the aches and pains and stresses and whatever else. And it's like, you're just, you're young and happy and no responsibilities once again, yep. just for a moment, you know? Yeah. That is one of my favorite parts that I think draws me to not only just hunting, but hunting with the dogs and being able to, it's like, every time you're out there, you just be worryless, you know, you're just yep. enjoying that moment. You can disconnect, you know, you're not, worried about your phone going off or you know anything of that nature and just out there watching them do what you want them to do and man when they have the success and you have the success of bagging the bird that you know they found and can share that moment it's it's pretty special you know and um it can get you hooked pretty quickly it really is and that that hunt in particular it was so cool because she had she had pointed this bird like have you ever seen great basin wild rye i have not it is a bunch grass that grows like six plus feet high and makes these bunches that are as big around as big tree trunks oh wow and uh, it's just yeah and so you get a few of those clustered up and it's like a, a little mini ecosystem in there yeah. and so the dog disappeared behind there was only like three or four bunches but she disappeared and I walked past it and there was no dog. And I was like, "Uh Oh, you know, <laughs> peeked around the one. And she was, I saw that dog on dead point. Well, the rooster, I was, I nearly stepped on it. It was like right next to my right foot. And so when I, I went to take another step, that bird blew up and, you know, almost yeah. boxed my nose. And I was yeah. like, Holy, you know, <laughs> and uh, got a, got one of those grouse reactions and, and swung the gun over and dropped it really quick. Yeah. I was like, Whoa, probably should have let it get out there a little further. <laughs> Might not be the best eating bird. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, those, those seem to happen sometimes. Yeah. When they get up like that right in front of you, it's you no know, natural reaction to raise up and protect yourself <laughs> yeah that's basically what it was self-defense yeah that's crazy so you've uh how how young is your youngest setter she's four four and uh yeah and i give that little dog a lot of grief because she's from a, a different bloodline um we we liked the traits of our first dog so much that when we got the second dog the hipless dog we looked into the pedigree to where they had similar blood and the breeder we got the second dog from got a lot of their bloodline from the breeder that we bought our first dog from. Okay. And so the reason we didn't go back to the, the first breeder was because they closed their doors. They got too old and retired. Yeah. So anyhow, we, you know, that's, we looked into the genetics there and then for some reason we got suckered into this, this pup who's <laughs> now a four-year-old pup in the, uh, her her genes aren't quite the same she's got some stuff in there um you know we looked at the pedigree and thought yeah she's actually probably going to be an okay dog but she was she was a cheaper dog and like by about 600 bucks <laughs> and so i think ultimately we got suckered in by the sale price you know and yeah. uh, she, she she's i i've been thinking she's a subpar hunter for a long time 
but honestly, I think the dog is just a different dog and, and her hunting style reminds me more of a field trial type dog that runs really, really big, mm-hmm. you know? So my other dogs were, would range out for, they would maybe push to 500 yards if I would have let them. Um, now that they're older, a couple hundred yards, they're happy with it. You know, they, they yeah. work a lot closer. This young dog, she'll go, I haven't seen her decide to turn back yet. <laughs> I usually remind her that she's hunting with me and she needs to stop and come back. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like our styles are just different because I've seen her pull some miraculous points, but she, if the bird leaves, she leaves too. And yeah. I, we're just now getting to the point where she isn't flushing the birds. So I, that's, she's, so that dog is the reason I, I got electronic collars and now the reason <laughs> I've got pigeons. Yeah. <laughs> so, Man, it, you wanna those GPS service collars are saviors for big running dogs. They are, you know, and uh, just being able to tell them where they're at and what the heck's even going on. You yeah. know, they're out that far and whatnot. Well, you know, something interesting. It, I I couldn't have afforded any of those electronics when I first got my my you know first and second dogs. Yeah, and uh, so it was just I worked on the dogs around the house. I, I guess when I got them, I was. I was living out in a trailer in the middle of wheat fields, not too different from where, where the, my home is now, but it was like, I'd come home from work and kick the dog out in the yard and we would all play and everything was great, you know, and I didn't mm-hmm. have to worry about having them on the leash. And so they learned really early just to hang around and do and got that basic obedience. And so when we would go run on the grassland, never really worried about losing the dog. It did get a little bit nerve wracking when, you know, they're small dogs and they can disappear in the grass after about 30 or 40 yards. Yeah. And so when the dog is really out there and you don't know how far the dog is and it goes on point and you have no idea where it is and, but you're certain that it's on a bird because you haven't seen or heard from it for a while. Yeah. Then it's like, Hmm, well, okay, where's the last place that I saw it? And you go over that direction, but the dog could be totally somewhere else. Right. So at least they came to whistle commands. So that, work i could i could communicate whistle and hand signal but i didn't realize like how how much success we were losing because i had to know where the dog was half the time yeah so that would be tough yeah what did you i mean you just basically just keep walking until you find it yeah and and my strategy was when those dogs were were younger and bigger running was probably a better strategy for my own physical health was I just tried as best I could to keep up and not be running but just yeah. keep on you know and keep them in sight as much as I could yeah did uh so you have your youngest one's four are you when do you think you'll be are you ever going to add another one or yeah but I think I'm going to wait until the, the four-year-old is the only one left yeah that's right yep. bad bad we yeah, have because Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say I got I have two now, two dogs, and a lot of people ask when I'm gonna add the third and <sighs> it's a tough that's just gonna be super tough because they've hunted like these two have hunted together their whole life, you know, and he just had a third one in there and I don't know if I'm mentally ready for it and you know, I I feel they have, you know they're five and four right now so they have another good five six years potentially you know of good hunting years and it's like 
I don't really want to throw a third one in there and take away from what they have, but then I also don't want to wait too long, you know, in case God forbid something crazy happens, you know, and um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough to know when it's time to get yeah, one. It is. I guess my only advice to you is if you're happy with, with how they hunt together and you know, like you, they do that well together and you enjoy that time with them, just keep it that way for a while. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's probably the best thing. Cause like I said, they're, they're attached at the hips, you know, they're, they're brother and sister from a different, you know, um, obviously breed, but or a different litter, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they do well together. You know, I take them, uh, last year was our first year waterfall hunting. So they do well together in the blinds. And, um, my one the youngest, she, she's a hog on the retrieves. She's just, um, she just goes in and gets it right away where my other one, he, he, he sometimes he'll pick it up like immediately and come back. Sometimes he'll just stand over top of it for a second. And by the time he stands over top of it and looks at it for a second, the other one's coming in and sealing it from him. But yeah, no, that's, <clears throat> I always just, yeah, people ask me and I'm like, God, I don't know, you know, and I, I look at, you know, when I, when I got them and when we started, I wasn't, you know, super worried about, having 100% field or, uh, hunting bloodlines, you know, and, um, I look back on their pedigree and they do have some of it in there, but they're not, you know, it's not 100%, uh, field bred golden per se, but I mean, they do what they're supposed to do. They listen and, you know, I, but I always have that itch of, you know, I want to see what a true, Fieldbird Golden can do, and mm-hmm. you know it's like, but I gotta wait. I don't want to, you know, just push these two aside just to yeah. throw a third one in there because that's what I feel like a third one would do. Is you know, you get that one, it's kind of like, well, these two kind of, you know, go to the wayside a little bit, and I'm not ready to do that. Yeah, it definitely throws a wrench in things for a little while. Yeah. And it's like, I, I live in town, so having a third dog would be, <laughs> be a lot of work. Yeah. So, no, goldens, are, goldens are great. I, I, there's a guy in the pheasant chapter here who's been running Goldens for a long time, and they're just solid pheasant dogs for him. Yeah. Uh, and, and I really enjoy the stories he's got about, you know, you get a pellet and a bird, and somehow the dog seems to know it. And he's like, when those dogs see that a bird's been hit they don't leave it they you yeah know, he's like they will trail that sucker he's like yep you'll see him disappear way over the hills and he's like you just wait <laughs> like yep. 10 maybe even 15 minutes later they will come back with that bird <laughs> yeah yeah we we rarely lose i can't say we never have because we have but we rarely lose you know any down birds um and it's you know they do have really good noses and tracking ability and whatnot it's it's cool to watch them work uh i i like watching you know i we're lucky enough i'm gonna get to hunt with a guy that we've mentioned in a few podcasts that he has a red irish setter and that's going to be my first experience ever hunting over a setter this coming year uh so i'm pretty pretty pumped for that just to you know see how they work in the field and i'm just used to flushing dogs so it's yeah it'll be cool to see that 
Well, I hope you guys do uh, an episode after that hunt because I've never hunted with a red setter either. None of the yeah. Irish. You know, I've, I hunt with, with folks I know that have Gordons and I've been really impressed with them too. But the Irish setter, you know, it's like they, they fell to the wayside as a, as a bird dog probably because of pet trade type breedings for a while but i you know if, if there's a good bloodline i'm certain they're just great dogs because they're you know they're just as as rambunctious and and tenacious yeah. as the other big running setters yeah we'll for sure do it i think we might actually it'll depend on how the hunt goes or he'll be out in wyoming but i might actually take out a the podcast equipment and try to do um do a podcast record a podcast when we're out there and a lot of it will depend on i don't know if we'll have any signal or um, you know i guess we're camping so i don't know if i have enough battery power to you know be able to record a full one or something but yeah yeah, we'll for sure do one after it and talk about the experience of it and whatnot so that'll be hopefully you know i don't know if i'll have my my gopro and stuff so hopefully the dog will be you know, close to be able to get a couple good mm-hmm. snaps of them on point and uh, birds flushing and stuff. So I think it'll be, it'll be pretty neat. That's awesome. Yeah. I hope that's a good experience for you. Yeah, no, we're looking, definitely looking forward to it. We're, you know, ex- I've never expanded much outside of Iowa, um, but we're lucky enough to meet a couple guys that have, um, that we've become friends with, they, you know, met them kind of through the podcast a little mm-hmm. bit and, um they invited us to go out to wyoming with them uh this old sage grouse hunting nice um, so we're gonna take them up on that opportunity and uh, yeah so that'll be new bird new dogs you know uh totally new experience and camping nonetheless so uh getting the full-on experience going out there that's excellent yeah it should be very cool so if you if you guys end up doing a road trip out all the way out to the to the Washington area, let me know, and I'll be more than happy to show you around. We've yeah. uh, the Palouse down at least down my way has had a phenomenal Hungarian partridge years the last couple three years. Nice. So yeah, it's it's just been. I took a guy out last year who's never hunted with a pointing dog, and yeah. uh, took him into a couple of the partridge covers that I know, and it, we got him four coveys that morning, and he got his first hunt, and you know got to see a pointing dog actually work, and it was just. Man, that was an awesome day. <laughs> yeah. What part of uh, Washington you live in? So this seeing. is um, south of the Snake River. So, so you'll see down in that southeast corner, it comes out of uh, Lewiston, Idaho, and flows down toward Umatilla, Oregon. And so it's just this little teeny bottom corner of the state. Just seeing how far of a, it's a mm-hmm. hole out there. It's a hole. <laughs> <laughs> Like one said, way, if you ever find yourself out this way, <laughs> yeah. One way is from my hometown to this is just like the middle of Washington, so I don't know if it's correct where it's at, but 1,765 miles. Mm-hmm. And that would be, let's see, that's going to right next to Chumstick and Leavenworth. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're yeah, it would be a little shorter than that because if you were coming, okay. let's see, you're coming out 90, you would head south around Spokane. Okay, nice. Be a cool, be a fun trip. Yeah. I would probably have to bring my soon-to-be wife on that one mm-hmm. just to <laughs> be like, hey, you want to ride with me for 24 hours? <laughs> I don't know if she would actually enjoy that or 
Well, you know, I mean, you mentioned <laughs> Leavenworth. That's a really neat Bavarian town. Is it? Uh, yeah. It, nice. it, I just think that Central Washington, it, well, there, I mean, there's lots of Washington, I think is really cool. Central yeah. Washington, though, the, the Scablands out there is a really neat spot and, and has phenomenal quail and, and pheasant hunting when you can find the good uh, state grounds and whatnot that are in habitat still. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, it's actually a pretty place. Spokane's not a bad place either. Does it rain out there a lot? Not here, not on the east side. So okay. the Cascade Range is, is a really big, causes a really big rain shadow. You know, it's wet uh, all the way on the, the coastal range. And then you, by the time, it's funny, if you're in a town called Wenatchee, you can stand there and look out on the ridges toward the west and you can see the um, the evergreens peter out. And so oh, really? by the time, yeah, by the time the, the precip crosses the Columbia River right there at Wenatchee, it's sagebrush from there all the way over. Oh, really? Yeah. Dang. Yeah, you can kind of see on the map how it's green. Yep. It's nice and green and then it's brown. <laughs> That's right. By June, all of the all of the cheat grass in the hills and whatnot is already brown. That's awesome. That's crazy. I never, like I said, I never knew Washington. You know, a lot of people talk about uh Montana and whatnot having a good amount of different species of upland birds. I didn't know that Washington was that plentiful of uh different species to chase. Yeah. We've got a lot of different species, which is great. It's, you know, the, the abundance is not what you find in some of the other Western states. So yeah. Washington is not like a, a major um, destination, destination. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I guess it depends on what your expectations are because, yeah. you know, I, I'd, I'd never tire of, of hunting this area. Yeah. I think it's cool. I, I won't really do it. I mean, I'm going to kind of start it with these dogs, but um especially my next one, I would like to just see how many different species I can get mm -hmm. with that dog, you know, and, and to do that, I'm going to have to travel, obviously, 1,758 miles west, uh, <laughs> you know, and so, but it's worth it, you know, to get those memories and whatnot. Yeah. What's uh, out of the upland birds that you've hunted, What's your favorite one to? Oh man, another nearly impossible question. <laughs> <laughs> All of them. Oh my gosh, I think some of the best hunts that I've had have been on the covey birds, like quail and partridge. You know, chucker are just so hard because of their terrain and, and their just the way they they are. You know, yeah. But man, if you can get on really good Hungarian partridge or really good valley quail coveys the way those birds hold and the way they flush and it's just it's just phenomenal i yeah. I, I oh man and so i'm really blessed to have a huge quail cover here on my little homestead and uh, so i do some of the property work to make sure that they're fat and happy yeah and a couple times a year me and the dogs run out for you know it doesn't take us long i've only got six and a half acres and we just go out and it's like you, you, the dog knows the brush piles, runs up, points the brush pile, and you go in and you know it's like, okay, so maybe 50% of the covey is going to get up first. So you let that first flush go and you just yeah. hang out for a minute. And then the next flush comes up and, you know, <laughs> so just knowing the birds and, and where they are and how they are, man, the covey birds are so much fun. Yeah, it is kind of cool. It's like a, a popcorn kind of, you know, you get mm -hmm. four or five and then another one, another one. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like it, you know, in Iowa, I wish we had a better quail population, but you got to go pretty far south to, and I'm sure there's pockets throughout the state that you can find 
some decent populations, but um, yeah, quail. My so we raise quail every year, and I use them mainly for training the dogs and what I'm then my dad has some some ground outside of our hometown and so he we release them out there and use them to let the dogs work them and whatnot but just listening to them get up and just the their fast wing beat and stuff it's super cool yeah they are awesome I've been wanting to hunt bobs for a long time so I bet that's pretty sweet yeah yeah and I don't I'm I'm assuming the other type of quail are pretty similar when they get up like sound wise and uh as fast as they're flying i guess you know that's that's another fun part is just how small and fast they are yeah just get up and get out you know why one of the things i found over the years is i really don't mind missing birds because i always learn something from it but i, yeah. I kind of like being baffled and how it actually happens sometimes yeah you know i like I mentioned earlier, I get I get the um, snap shooting, like the instinctual pull up and shoot kind of thing happens to me quite often if I get flustered. <laughs> and just what you know, you'll see the wad blow right past a bird like that. And it's like, if I'd have just yeah. waited for it to get further out there, you know, something yep. like that. I, yeah, I really, I really enjoy screwing up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's the best way to learn. <laughs> it's true. You know, sometimes it comes. It's a hard way to learn, but it's usually a good way to learn. So, well, Brad, I appreciate coming on the podcast. Uh, everybody, make sure you go check him out. It's tailfeathers underscore upland on Instagram. Uh, go check out his book. Uh, go out and support him. So I'll definitely be picking up a copy of it. Um, look forward to reading it. And, um, yeah, if we ever get out to Washington, you know, and um, make that trek out there, we'll definitely keep in contact and, uh, um, Look forward to seeing seeing some of your bird hunts this year and um, reading some more of your articles. It sounds good, Tyler. I really appreciate the, uh, the support and you having me on. Yeah, no problem. So, well, you have a good rest of your night and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks,